Welcome to None Dare Call It Ordinary, the podcast that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs out of the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the delirious Forrest and the deciduous Brent. All right. Good names. I'm just too delirious to say anything about that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's why I chose it. It was appropriate for this episode. And I believe deciduous for Brent means um, shedding leaves once a year. Yeah, that's and that is definitely true. <laughs> that is what Brent is up to all the time. Yep. And I think we're getting near the time. Yeah, we're getting near the time where the annual shedding of Brent's leaves and it'll be a beautiful experience for all. Yep. I don't know, Dylan. I think you made a mistake because a deciduous forest would have made a lot of sense. <laughs> that would have made perfect sense. Uh, well, it would have been too obvious. It would have been too obvious. <laughs> oh, you know, I that's see. not what we're all about here. <laughs> And plus, you are, in fact, delirious. So That's true. I've had my moments of delirium. We put we put truth above <laughs> All the else. beauty. The beautiful <laughs> is, uh, is the way we do things here. And actually, we're recording on a holiday today, which we haven't done in a while. So that's kind of um, fun. Yeah, we are recording what on is, a holiday. Yeah. It's Easter. Easter, Easter Sunday. Yes. Hoppy Easter. Kind of nice. It the was Savior hath risen. Oh, yeah. It was the reason we started with the with the book of Revelations, mm -hmm. which was our very first series on this podcast, if I remember correctly. And so, yeah, it's nice to come back into the holiday spirit. <laughs> I hope everyone is ready and celebrating with their loved ones. And we need to uh, update everyone on our social media hegemony challenge, which is still raging <laughs> for who can preemptively war their way to d democratizing the internet. Let's see where everyone stands right now. Uh, Brent, who is in charge of the Instagram account, he currently stands at 116 followers, which is a two, two more than he had last week. Yes. Uh, but that's still, that's not <laughs> oh, enough. Man. He's still in third place with the Saddam Hussein bronze star award for being a total loser. I'm sorry, Brent. <laughs> Don't hang me. <laughs> <laughs> Forrest, who is in charge of the YouTube account, now has 29 subscribers, which is uh, three more than he had last week. And he is still in second place with the Nicholas Maduro Silver Star Award for being defeated, but still kicking. <laughs> and still kicking. yours truly, Dylan, who is in charge of the Twitter account. We currently have 382 followers, which is 20 more than last week. Man. So I am still on track. Damn. To win the John Bolton Gold Star Award for total world domination. <laughs> and so you can vote for which co-host you would like to see win the social media hegemony challenge by either subscribing or following us on Twitter at NDCIO, Instagram at Nundare Call It Ordinary, or YouTube, the link to which is on our website, NundareCallItOrdinary.com, if you want to participate in the challenge. And while we're talking about social media, also a reminder to please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever your podcasts are served. Okay, so what are we talking about today, Dylan? Well, today we are talking about mental illness denialism, also known as anti-psychiatry, which is the view that despite everything Big Pharma and your shrink is telling you, <laughs> there are in fact no mental illnesses. Yeah that the theory of psychiatry is just as bad as alchemy and astrology. And since we are talking about mental illness, we also kind of right up the top want to let everyone know that if you yourself are suffering from a mental illness, which is truly real, we highly encourage you to reach out for some professional licensed psychiatrists. There are plenty of hotlines and websites out there, and we've collected 
a bunch of these resources on our website. So if you go to none dare call it ordinary.com slash mental health, you'll find a list of resources provided by the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Also, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number is 1-800-273-8255. And please, we ask you to use those resources if you need them. They are there for you. Don't ever feel discouraged or feel like you don't deserve it. You deserve all the resources you can get your hands on. Okay, so when we talk about anti-psychiatry, when we talk about mental illness denialism, we're really focusing in on how this came about in roughly the 1950s, the late 1950s, early 1960s. So we need to understand something about the psychiatric climate at around those times, especially in the United States. At this time, psychoanalysis ruled. If you went to see a psychiatrist, you were seeing someone who was trained in psychoanalysis, the psychiatric theories of Freud and then Jung and perhaps Lacan. So this is kind of the stereotypical, you sit on a couch facing away from the psychiatrist while the psychoanalyst writes down notes and stuff like that. And the whole business about the ego, the id and the superego, all this kind of stuff. What really matters is that psychiatry wasn't tuned in so much into neurology, into the workings of the brain. It was kind of separate from that realm of medicine. Also, another thing to understand at this time is the ruling of the so-called somatic therapies. So this includes electroshock therapy. This includes lobotomies, which were in the 50s and 60s becoming more known that these were the types of treatment being used. And there was a bit of a backlash, as you can imagine. So the the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest has fairly graphic depictions of electroshock therapy and lobotomy. And if if psychiatry meant for you electroshock therapy and lobotomy, you would have a much more negative spin on it. But really the biggest part of the psychiatric climate was the role of mental asylums. In our episode on mass incarceration, we talked about how 22,000 Americans are involuntarily committed to psychiatric institutions where in the 1950s, more than 500,000 Americans were so committed, reaching an all-time high of 533,000 in 1953. Okay, so Dylan, I hear from alternative health gurus all the time that mental illnesses are only getting worse, and it's because of psychiatric drugs and psychiatry itself, Uh and yet less people are being involuntarily committed. So how can that be? Now, while I would hate to ever even partially agree with an alternative health guru... (laughs) The reduction in numbers is not purely to do with fewer cases of mental illness. So there's definitely more effective psychiatric medication available today. There's also better funding for mental health research, and that's playing a role. But also, most of these asylums were state-run, and state governments just wanted to reduce their costs. So one way to deinstitutionalize is something that happened in Las Vegas with the Ross and Neal Psychiatric Hospital, where... They would literally just release people and give them a Greyhound ticket, bus ticket to, you know, Southern California or wherever else in the country. Just say, hey, have a nice life. So it's also yes, nothing. That's an extreme version, but nothing nicer than sitting on a Greyhound bus for hours. That always helps. Yeah, that's definitely especially when you're having like a psychotic breakdown. Exactly. Yeah, that's always a positive influence on your mental health is to be on a Greyhound bus. (laughs) 
So what kind of patients were going to mental asylums? Most of them suffered from dementia, seizure disorders, paralysis, and advanced neurosyphilis. Medical knowledge at the time really had no way to treat these conditions, so the only approach was long-term commitment. As stated in the article, Civil Commitment in the United States, by doctors Megan Testa and Sarah G. West, quote, Asylums thus became long-term homes for chronic patients whose care consisted of restraint, sedation with medications such as bromides and chloral hydrate, or experimental treatment with opium, camphor, and cathartics. And this made sense given the idea at the time that people who suffered from mental illness were simply incapable of making any decisions on their own. Thus, involuntary commitment was the only option. And to further compound the immorality of the situation, since most asylums were private and there was little regulation of their activity, families could essentially pay to have an annoying relative committed. Yeah, and nowadays, they just drop them off at Barnes & Noble. So there's still that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's definitely them. a different strategy. But yeah, that's... Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Even if someone managed to be declared sane by an asylum and then released, they often lost many civil rights, including property and custody rights. One egregious example of this is Elizabeth Packard in the 19th century, who was committed for, quote, moral insanity by her husband because she dared to explore religions outside of Presbyterianism. Oh, <laughs> oh, dear fucking God. T tell me she wasn't exploring Methodism. That is. Oof, I, mean. I don't know. It didn't say it could have been Catholicism, <laughs> which we all know is the oh, worst. That would be, point. I mean, Lord clearly yep. that is mental insanity exactly. or moral insanity. Excuse <laughs> me. And so she was committed and held for three years because she dared not be a Presbyterian. And she discovered when she was released, she had lost custody of her children and ownership of her property. Oh, well, you know, she's homeless and childless now, but at least she's cured. So that's. Yeah, that's that's definitely positive. Yep. And so this is the climate of psychiatry in the late 50s, early 60s. And it's out of this climate that enters the true godfather of mental illness denialism, Thomas Zaz. And Brent has more to say about him. Yes, Thomas Saz was a Hungarian-American psychiatrist. So, you know, right off the bat, I do have to point our listeners to YouTube, where there's this great clip of a show called Firing Line, which is hosted by far-left elitist by today's standards, William F. Buckley Jr. So, what a snob. Um, just listen to his accent. You know yeah, he's just, a, a coastal know. elite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah his transatlantic <laughs> accent. So in this hour-long... Today, we're going to talk about mental illness on the Non-Dear Ordinary Podcast. In this hour-long clip, they discuss psychiatry with Thomas Sass. Sass spent most of his professional career as professor of psychiatry at the State University of New York, Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. He was a lifetime fellow of the American Psych Psychiatric Association and a lifelong member of the American Psychoanalytical Association. Sounds good so far, right? Well, let's let's hold oh, up yeah. here. Uh, yeah, oh, according oh. to a ra Rational Wiki, which has a great article on the on uh, Sauce. Sauce was quote Sauce was an ideologically motivated doctor with little real world experience who used his post to attack the workings of the legal system. In fact, he admitted he was never really interested in psychiatry or psychology. <laughs> oh, okay. So he's like the Jim Jones of psychiatry. Yeah. I mean, he was never too much interested in Jesus, oh, but yeah. became a preacher anyway. That's true. Yeah, he just liked the outfit and the yelling. Right. That's really, that's what drew him. Luckily, the outcome isn't quite the same. Yeah. 
So Zaus once said, quote, these things called mental illnesses are not diseases at all, but part of the vicissitudes of life. So basically shit happens. Zaus wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness, Foundations of a Theory of Personal Conduct in 1961. This book became the holy Bible for mental illness denialism. And like the Bible, this book is mostly false. Oh, whoa, shots fired. <laughs> I, oh, on Easter, too. My oh, bad. I'm sorry. I also like that little Easter humor theory of personal <laughs> conduct. It's like you're not mentally ill. You're just conducting yourself. Incorrectly. <laughs> That's something we're going to talk about. I mean, that is a core of saws and most mental illness denialists view is that basically people who have quote unquote unquote people who have mental illnesses are just basically moral failures. I mean, it's really kind of going backwards into that kind of way of thinking and that people are just, they don't know how to live. (laughs) What they need is a self-help book to teach them how to like, I don't know. They need Jordan Peterson is what they need. Right. Right. Oh, hence his extreme popularity. It all makes sense. Exactly. So this wasn't the only book that Souse wrote. He graced this world with over 10 books in which his main argument was that mental illness was a, quote, literalized metaphor because the mind was not a physical scientific object and therefore could not be subject to a biological disease. So clearly, Zhao's brain is not a physical scientific object. You know, Forrest does tear this apart later, but I don't want to spoil it. I remember when, because I've done some research on philosophy of psychiatry and all this kind of stuff, and, you know, Saz was put forward as, this is the guy to read. This is the guy who's got the argument that mental illness is not real. And one of his core claims is that what a disease is, is tissue damage. Like that's what having a disease is. And so because the mind isn't made out of tissue, (laughs) it can't have tissue damage. And therefore there is no mental illness. I was like, is that it? Really? Like that's the argument. (laughs) It's, it's just a semantic game at that point. And it's just not very helpful. I think a useful analogy to bring to the table here is thinking about how a computer can malfunction. So one way to break a computer is to just bash it with a hammer a bunch. It's going to stop working at that point. Another way is to infect it with malware. And in the latter case, it's not like there's a problem with the hardware itself. All that is working perfectly fine. It's just a software problem. It's a problem with the underlying hardware is performing computations that are they're following the right instructions but those instructions are ultimately detrimental to the activity of the software level experience as a whole and so what saz is saying is that well a computer virus doesn't involve a hardware malfunction and so therefore it's not really a problem that seems to be (laughs) the extent of the argument so here are some of zaus's beliefs that he discusses in his books So he did not support the insanity defense, which is insane, obviously. And he thought people who were depressed should be allowed to kill themselves if they wanted to. But of course, only after they bought his book. Oh, yeah. You got to keep that grift going. In fact, Souss didn't believe in depression as a mental disorder. In an article in the New York Times magazine, it states, quote, once in a classroom, Souss asked his students, has she got an illness called depression or has she got a lot of problems and troubles which make her unhappy? Hmm, I don't know. I have a problem with this term. Unhappy sounds like some kind of mumbo jumbo so-called mental (laughs) attribute to me. I think his orthodoxy is starting Mm -hmm. to waver here. Yeah, definitely. There's just tissue. (laughs) So Zaus turns and writes. Tissue is damaged. (laughs) Zaus turns and writes in large block letters 
depression. And underneath that, quote, unhappy human being. Tell me, he says, facing the class, does the psychiatric term say more than the simple descriptive phrase? Does it do anything other than turn a person with problems into a patient with a sickness? He puts down the chalk so hard that a cloud of dust rises. There is a low muttering among the students as he returns to his seat. <laughs> so, man, dramatic. Very, very dramatic reading. This moment really actually called for a Josh Wheaton type character to stand up and make some heroic speech to the big bad professor like in God's Not Dead. A classic. Oh, yeah. But it would be called something like Sykes Not Dead or maybe God <laughs> is depressed. It could be something like that. Sykes Not Dead is surely alive, living on the inside, roaring like a lesion. <laughs> I love that song by the fake news boys. So. Oh, man. Oh. Also, um... You know, he asks, does the psychiatric term depression say more than the simple descriptive phrase unhappy human being? And the answer to the rhetorical question is yes, which is why you should avoid rhetorical questions. Um, so, for example, you know, I've been sad. I've been unhappy as a response to certain events in my life, such as our lovebird Dasa passed away or we first oh. discovered my sister-in-law's brain tumor. I've also had depressive episodes where I thought I was worthless and active harm to the people around me merely by existing and fantasized about fleeing myself off the footbridge to wash you onto oncoming traffic below. Jeez. I didn't feel these things because life was bringing me down. It's really the other way around because I was suffering a depressive episode. Everything that happened to me, good or bad was filtered through my dysfunctional brain. So I just think this silly rhetorical question is just obviously yes, there's a difference between being unhappy because of external forces and being depressed, which has an internal drive that causes you to kind of reinterpret external forces yeah. in a different way. And I should also say this is a very common mental illness denial strategy, which is equating mental illness with simply having negative emotions or just not living well. So mm -hmm. you're not depressed. You're just sad and or lazy. Like this is just. Like, it, there's no difference in their mind. They try to equate these two things fallaciously. And I would also imagine that, like, scale, frequency, and intensity are factors. Yeah. Because I remember as a, as a teenager, I had a depressive episode that lasted over a year where I only wanted to lie in bed all day and do, like, nothing. Mm -hmm. It was like I lost the ability to just feel anything. Yeah. And, um, you know, these days, every once in a while, I'll feel a bit depressed, but it's fleeting and infrequent. So I wouldn't say I suffer from depression now. Whereas when I was like 16, I certainly did. Yeah. Right. So that makes sense. Like if I, there will be once, like, you know, maybe once every six months where there's like a day where I just want to lay in bed and do nothing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it would be weird to say, oh, I suffer from depression. It's like at that point, it's like, even though it's the same kind of feeling because it's not chronic and doesn't go on forever and make right. you, you know, just completely numb. Then I, I, at that point I wouldn't say, oh, you're mentally ill. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. This is like, you know, not to get all really serious here, but this is why we cover these quacksters and con artists. Is they, I mean, they're just dangerous by persuading people who suffer from depression to not get professional help. You know, there, there really are, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, successful drugs that can help with depression, mental illness, websites. But these denialists, you know, they not only consider these prescribed drugs useless, but they're even harmful, according to them, which is, you know, an extra layer of horror right there. So, yeah, and they're making well, money. I mean, there, there's some there's some kernel of truth to that because a lot of psychiatric drugs will have these adverse effects, right. but it's, it's not like they're just bad and it's 100% bad the way that they put them out, like right. make it out to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So anyway, he was an advocate for the legalization of all drugs, mm. except, you know, those drugs that we just mentioned that help with mental illness. Obviously. Oh, Ron Paul. Ron oh, Paul. Man. I'll, I'll <laughs> give you my Zoloft after you pry it from my cold, still living hands because they saved my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I like how the actor who said that line in a movie ended up talking to a chair, pretending it was Obama at a Republican convention. Ah, uh, the good old days when someone like that, something like that was a scandal. So, Wait, what? Um, the actor who said that line in a movie, what, Brent, is Clint Eastwood Lord Voldemort now? He <laughs> shall not be named. <laughs> no, also, like, you know, fun fact, that's not a Clint Eastwood line, but a Charlton Heston line. Yeah, oh, nice that's try. what I was thinking. That's right. Oh, my God. Uh, God Brent, damn it, though. You know what? On. God damn it, Forrest. I'm, I'm trying to give his content for our new series called None Dare Call It Wrong. So let's just. You can't. You can't just lie. We can't lie to our audience. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> We have to make this series work. Just so we can correct it later. <laughs> That's not how this works. All right. All right. Uh, anyway. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I can picture him saying that now at a convention, right? An NRA convention. He's holding up the rifle. Anyway. Yeah. So he didn't agree with the involuntary commitment, which is when a court orders someone into treatment at a psychiatric hospital. He considered admitting anyone to a psychiatric hospital, quote, a form of brutality. And, you know, unenlightened practices of insane asylums and Freudian nonsense aside, I feel that for at least half a million people in the 1950s, if Zaz had his way, it might have been even less pretty for them and the people around him. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I mean, because we didn't, for a lot of these conditions, we didn't really know how to treat it. I mean, so it would fall back on exactly families. And I I think like what happened with deinstitutionalization in the 60s and 70s was a lot of these folks just became homeless. It's not like they're great now. It's just we haven't figured out how to morally treat these folks and not take away their rights. I think this is still something I think we've we've gone too far in the other direction. And I can only imagine because, you know, I have a family member that I uh, try to help who is bipolar. And for a long time, he was undiagnosed. And even though I suspected he was bipolar, even then dealing with the kinds of things that would happen from an undiagnosed person with bipolar disorder and they don't know it. I mean, it's it's so intense. You can just imagine what people, I mean, if you had no way to even know what this was or what was going on, I can't even imagine how you would deal with it. Yeah. You know, I guess what I'm trying to say is if the kinds of behaviors that do crop up from mentally ill people, it's like if the patient has no clue what's going on and the doctors have no clue what's going on, I mean, that you're just in the fucking dark. So, I mean- you just got to be a little more kind towards the early attempts at trying to help these people because even though there's a lot of fucked up things that happened in, you know, sane asylums and things, I'm not going to like say that that was all just nice. It's just yeah. to say like that psychiatrists and psychologists were just always malevolent from the get go is just this idiotic idea. Yeah. That's all I'm trying yeah. To say. It was seen exactly. like these, these practices were seen as benevolent. They were seen as kind of progressive. Um, right. And they, in, in a weird sense, they kind of were. And that's yeah. the thing. It's just, yeah. it's just you can't judge them by today's standard. That's the main issue. Yeah, definitely. All right. So he was also, so Zaus was also a critic of the idea that homosexuality was a disease. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> when you deny a suitcase term, all things good and bad in the suitcase disappear. So it's a small win wrapped in a big loss. Yeah. yeah it's like LaRouche's advocating for nuclear energy. It's kind yeah. of. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thing. One thing we, we want to harp on is that mistakes have been made. In the field of psychiatry <laughs> and homosexuality, what? it took until 1973 for it to be removed as a mental illness. 
But believe it or not, worse mistakes have been made. So some of my favorite in terms of how horrible they are, are mental illnesses that were diagnosed in slaves. So one was uh, drapetomania, which was a mental illness that afflicted slaves and made them think they totally shouldn't be slaves, which is really bizarre. Oh, wow. And then there was also diesthesia ethiopica, which was another debilitating mental illness that caused slaves to not recognize the property rights of their owners, which is just really bizarre, really unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, let me let, let's take a quick break. I need to go watch Django Unchained real quick. So oh, I'll yeah, he back. definitely you had know, which reminds me everyone knows that the right way to diagnose mental illness is to count skull bumps. So oh, yeah, make phrenology great again. Yeah, you'll find Old some uh, lesions, oh. some skull lesions that way. That's how we can make it scientific. Ah, <laughs> I see. Yeah. So Zaus also thought that psychiatry was a pseudoscience and called psychiatrists, quote, doctors of the soul and witch hunters. Ooh. So Robert Mueller, then, I guess. Ooh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, also, oh, yeah. uh, Doctors of the Soul is another good band name. So yes, the list here. yes. During the 1970s, Zaus referred to psychiatrists as witch hunters. In the 1980s, he often referred to them as slave owners and Nazis. Wow. So course. in the night, yeah. In the 90s, he referred to them as a legit pre- medical practitioner. Not just oh, kidding. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, at that point, you, you just got to keep going with the same thing. You can't just change <laughs> ship. 180. Once you say somebody's a Nazi, you got to go all the way. Yeah, and a slave owner. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So Zaus once said that, quote, psychiatry is in the company of alchemy and astrology. Let us suppose that there is no such thing as mental health or mental illness, that these words refer to nothing more substantial or real than did the astrological notions of the influence of planetary positions on personal conduct. I do like how so far the only positive things we can say about this guy is he was more right than Nancy Reagan on astrology <laughs> and right not to be mean to gay people. And that's about it. There's yeah. really nothing else that's positive good. to say yeah. about the man. I mean, those are still pretty good. Yeah. So, you know, we get, we'll, we'll take we'll what take we can get. Better than Lyndon LaRouge, in which case we couldn't say anything good about him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like so. nothing. Nuclear energy was it. And that was just zero. He was, he was negative yeah. good. <laughs> so anyway, so, you know, these little you know things we have to grasp onto to enjoy us well now he's about to get annoying so new york's commissioner of <laughs> so new york's commissioner of mental hygiene paul hawk did not want souse at syracuse psychiatric hospital anymore souse was moved to the veterans administration hospital just a few blocks away at first souse was fine with this transfer but eventually decided that it was a bunch of bullshit saying quote i don't want to belabor this metaphor but it was as if Mark told me you have to wear a yellow star. Ooh. So I, I guess he just became a sheriff somewhere around this time period. I'm not sure. Yeah, he was just being <laughs> deputized into the war against psychoanalysis. I don't think this is a negative thing at all. <laughs> Colleagues and students of Zaus protested this transfer by boycotting staff meetings and classes. Some of the local newspapers didn't sensationalize this in any way, shape or form. When one reporter, T. Lee Hughes, wrote, quote, one of the most flagrant breaches of academic freedom in the history of this school. Zaus is, quote, the victim of virtual academic crucifixion, Ooh. which is not a very, yeah, which is not really a very fun VR game oh. if you've ever played Ooh, it. Yeah, no. I'm also sort of on topic. You know, it's Easter Sunday. Good times. But it does come free with the Oculus Rift. So, I mean, people are going <laughs> to still play it. That's true. So in the end, Zaus tells us what he really thinks about his own legacy to mental health denialism. Quote, 
I really don't think I am falsifying it when I say I never had much hope of having an impact on psychiatry. I viewed psychiatry all along as more like the Catholic Church. What impact did Voltaire make on it? If you think about what happened since then, nothing. Humble. Yes. No, I didn't expect <laughs> to make any difference. So, you know, why Why don't you tell that to Lefebvre, Took, and all the rest of the set of Acontis, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I added that last part there. Did they not... Do they not make a difference? By the way, if you enjoy all Catholicism, you should check out our five-part series on Sunday Yeah, if you, want, if you want to see I mean, people making an impact on the Catholic Church, there's your group of folks right there. That's right. Boy, exactly. <laughs> Maybe if he tried to create his own alt-psychiatry, it would have been yes. better for him rather than to just deny yeah. it. Whole he kind of That's did true. in that book. He's point. got his theory of personal conduct, but no one cares about it because it's false. Um <laughs> All right, so we've been talking about Thomas Saws. We've been talking about him not thinking mental illnesses are really diseases. But what are diseases anyway? And kind of what does it mean to say that mental illness is a real thing? Saws's primary complaint is about the so-called medical model of psychiatry. Just as podiatrists are feet doctors and nephrologists are kidney doctors, psychiatrists are mind doctors. Actually, Dylan, we've already learned that they are, quote, doctors of the soul. So That's true. Soul doctors. Um <laughs> soul doctor. yeah i mean you know <laughs> they have yes they work could, at the soul asylum which is another yeah. 90s reference okay sorry yeah, the problem is i feel that uh saws is more of a spin doctor instead of a soul doctor <laughs> which is a which is a problem <laughs> but even amongst proponents of the medical model there are two competing versions this is from the uh, stanford encyclopedia philosophy article on the philosophy of psychiatry so there is the minimal interpretation, which treats mental illnesses, quote, as the observable, regular unfolding of a suite of symptoms. They make no claims about neural underpinnings and treat diagnostic categories as useful heuristics rather than natural kinds like sodium chloride or electron. The strong interpretation argues that mental illnesses should ultimately depend on neural anatomy and physiology. Mental illnesses will be explained in terms of underlying neurobiological systems. In other words, quote, a strong interpretation commits psychiatry to a view of mental illness as a medical disease in the strongest sense, that of a pathogenic process unfolding in bodily systems. Which, as we'll see below, is by no means the consensus among psychiatrists. Oh, damn it. Spoiler alert. Damn it. Jesus. Yeah, man. Yeah. Oh, we, sorry. I forgot. Now they're not going to see the twist. Now no, they're going to see the twist coming. So. The oh, well. Oh, damn God damn. <laughs> oh. So Saws himself is committed to the strong interpretation. Um, and is essentially a kind of error theorist. You know, if claims about mental illness are true, then they refer to discrete kinds of neurobiological pathology. They don't so refer, so all such claims are false. Ouch. His entire life's work refuted in one sentence. <laughs> all those books. I feel for him. I really got to say, I, I really feel for him. <sighs> yeah, that's why you got you to gotta diversify. Diversify your theories so that, you know, <laughs> the takedown doesn't just take one sentence. <laughs> Minimize those points of weakness. Yeah. So Saws even goes one step further. All disease for him is based on one kind of pathology, namely tissue lesion, which in medical speak is any tissue damage or abnormality. But this doesn't even work as a definition if we consider only physical ailments, as R.E. Kendall explains oh. in his review of the myth of mental illness. He lists plenty of diseases which are defined in all sorts of different ways. So there's the kind of the syndrome definition which is a cluster of related symptoms and signs with the characteristic evolution which is the kind of minimal uh, definition of mental illness that we talked about then there's the Zaz definition which is morbid anatomy tissue damage that kind of thing 
But along with these two, there are diseases defined in terms of histology, infective organism, physiological abnormality, biochemical abnormality, chromosomal abnormality, molecular abnormalities, and genetic abnormalities. So given all these different ways of defining diseases, we are probably in a better position to throw out Saz's myopic definition than to agree that mental illnesses aren't real. <clears throat> Maybe he could just uh, redefine all those things you just named as lesion and then he'll be fine. So these are all meaning. Oh, they all mean lesion. So there you go. Done. Yeah, exactly. It's almost as if you shouldn't take a subject as vast and complex as all of medical knowledge and just have some simple definition for it. Hey, 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 it works for it works for climate change, guys. Come on. It can work for climate change. <laughs> oh, it can work okay. for, that's true. Yeah, that's true. The climate is not complex. <laughs> no, not at all. It's just it's just <laughs> bullshit. OK, so anyway. This next part I call demolishing the straw man. So if you type into Google, there's no such thing as mental illness. You're likely to see rise near the top of search results an article called Reviving the Myth of Mental Illness by Stephen Morgan of the so-called Wellness Recovery Action Plan, or RAP, owned by Advocates for Human Potential Incorporated. So I'm not going to say that Advocates for Human Potential is a cult because that would be slander. I will say it totally sounds like a cult, though. I mean, I mean, that's a yes. Great and cult just name. in case their lawyers are listening to this, we're not saying you legally represent a cult. We're only saying your clients seem very, 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 very culty. Just yes, so we're exactly. Clear. And culty would make a great cult mascot too. Should get that guy out there. <laughs> culty, yeah. Culty the bear. Yeah. Culty the clown. All right. Culty the clown. <laughs> Now, normally at None Dare Call Ordinary, we're not in the business of debunking, as it were, but I'm going to make a slight exception for this one only because the stakes are just too high not to utterly annihilate these idiotic arguments. Yeah, also, I think the kind of debunking we're doing here is more conceptual as opposed to kind of empirical. So I think this right. is more fair game for us. Yeah, exactly. You know, while we can't debunk dumb empirical claims like, say, I don't know, there's a dinosaur somewhere in a Scottish lake, we can debunk dumb concepts for being conceptually dumb. Yeah, and, and if you enjoy discussions about Loch Ness Monster DNA or exorcism conferences, you'll love our first none dare call it news episode. So. Yes, episode seven all the way back there. Yep. St. Columbo. Yeah, we talked about yep. a dude looking for Loch Ness. Got the DNA solved. So Morgan writes, quote, what do we mean when we say someone has a mental illness? If we are to take the phrase literally, we mean that someone's mind is ill. But can a mind be ill with disease? To believe so, one must make two serious assumptions. One, that the mind is a tangible object with discrete boundaries. So I just want to say that this is just a total non sequitur. Yes. The claim that someone having a mental illness, quote, literally means that their mind is ill with disease is offered without any evidence or without any kind of conceptual analysis. The literally is just pure rhetoric. It's just a way to kind of bully you into thinking that this necessarily follows from the claim that uh, someone has a mental illness. And as we're going to talk about later, the most useful broad definition of a mental illness is that one is undergoing mental dysfunction, which is causing suffering or disability. We don't have to talk about a dysfunctional mind like it's, you know, discrete object. But instead, we could talk about dysfunctional mental processes, responses, etc., Therefore, this nonsense about the mind being tangible and having discrete boundaries is just a total irrelevant red herring. Exactly. And Morgan continues, quote, and two, that the health of that object can be measured. And yeah, again, you know, as I said earlier, we don't need to measure an object called the mind. 
Um, we can, however, determine the degree of mental dysfunction by talking with a patient and having them describe their mental lives to us. Sure, this isn't the same as measuring with a ruler, but given that the brain is the most complex object in the universe, it makes sense that the type of measurements required are not so straightforward. And sure, we don't need to measure a physical object called the mind. But remember, guys, the soul is a physical object, and I've been told it weighs 21 grams. It's oh, that is true. That's, so that's definitely true. Yep. Anyway, yeah. sorry. So I don't understand this reference. What, what is that? Where is There's that a movie from? called 21 Grams, and... Apparently, when you die, you lose oh. 21 grams of weight. But what is weight, really? So, yeah, we <laughs> apparently someone did experiments <laughs> where they like measured someone before and after they died and like, oh, man, he's 21 grams lighter. That must be what the soul waves. Um, but apparently okay. it has to do with moisture, I think, is the actual explanation, which is another word for soul. Yeah. So that's the way he works. <laughs> moisture. <laughs> that makes sense. Anyway, sorry for us. Good. OK. Morgan continues, quote, both of these assumptions are wrong. Since nothing called a mind exists that can be looked at under a microscope, the former assumption is wrong. The mind is not an object. It follows that the latter assumption is also wrong, because only objects with discrete boundaries can be objectively measured. Thus, it is important to note that mental illness in itself, the idea that a mind is ill, is actually a categorical error. Like saying the sky is ill, or the color green is healthy. There is no such thing as mental illness except by metaphor. It may seem like trivial semantics, but the mistake that mental illness is something concrete has led to an epidemic of mythology. Every day, someone is told they have a thing inside them called mental illness that must be contended with long term in order to achieve health. So I would agree with Morgan that it'd be foolish to think of the mind or mind processes in the same exact sense as one typically thinks of, say, the brain and brain processes. But here's the thing. It's just simply false to believe that modern psychiatry defines mental illnesses in such a sense. Take this characterization of such a definition from the DSM-4, the second to latest edition of the standard classification manual of modern psychiatry, wherein it states, quote, although this manual provides a classification of mental disorders, it must be admitted that no definition adequately specifies precise boundaries for the concept of mental disorder. This concept of mental disorder, like many other concepts in medicine and science, lacks a consistent operational definition that covers all situations. Each is a useful indicator for a mental disorder, but none is equivalent to the concept, and different situations call for different definitions. Despite these caveats, the notion of mental disorder that was included in the DSM-3 and DSM-3-R is presented here because it is as useful as any other available definition and has helped to guide decisions regarding which conditions on the boundary between normality and pathology should be included in the DSM-4. And the following is the updated definition from the DSM-5. A mental disorder is a syndrome characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotion regulation, or behavior that reflects a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or developmental processes underlying mental functioning. Mental disorders are usually associated with significant distress or disability in, so in social, occupational, or other important activities. An expectable or culturally approved response to a common stress or loss, such as the death of a loved one, is not a mental disorder. Socially deviant behavior, e.g. political, religious, or sexual, and conflicts that are primarily between the individual and society are not mental disorders, unless the deviance or conflict results from a dysfunction in the individual, as described above. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, given all that, the DSM's nuanced, open, and highly hedged definition is absolutely nothing like what Morgan is pretending to argue against. One can only conclude, therefore, that Morgan has built a straw man. Well, he suffers from straw man disorder, poor guy. Ooh, I, I think they're going to include that in the DSM-6, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I think that's uh, one of the big debates. Good. That's good. Yeah. So Morgan goes on to say that mental health experts, quote, claim that each mental illness correlates to a specific neurological disease. Yet you do not need to read studies or have a medical degree to rest assured that mental illness does not correlate to specific neurological diseases. You need only know that there is not a single reliable test for any of the 297 disorders listed in the current diagnostic manual, and not a single reliable test for any of the disorders being proposed for an expanded manual. Not one. So this claim is absolutely false. Like no modern psychiatrist worth their salt will tell you that mental illnesses correlate to any specific neurological disease, such as, say, Alzheimer's. However, it's beyond question that there are frequently neurological correlates. And even though they may not fall into a neat one-to-one ratio between mental and physiological, nor would it be right to classify mental illnesses as only identifiable as neurological disorders, but usually as containing behavioral and emotional elements as well, as stated in the DSM. Yeah, I think the um, the latest DSM, the DSM-5, actually kind of explicitly addresses this kind of one-to-one issue. Quote, approaches to validating diagnostic criteria for discrete categorical mental disorders have included the following types of evidence. Antecedent validators, similar genetic markers, family traits, temperament, and environmental exposure. Concurrent validators, similar neural substrates, biomarkers, emotional and cognitive processing, and symptom similarity. And predictive validators similar clinical course and treatment response. In DSM-5, we recognize that the current diagnostic criteria for any single disorder will not necessarily identify a homogenous group of patients who could be characterized reliably with all of these validators. Available evidence shows that these validators cross existing diagnostic boundaries, but tend to congregate more frequently within and across adjacent DSM-5 chapter groups. So I think this kind of validates exactly what Forrest was saying, is that psychiatrists don't themselves see mental disorders as corresponding one-to-one to to a discrete kind of neurobiological disorder. Yeah, exactly. Now, I am by no means an expert in psychology or psychiatry, but I do suffer from OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, and I know enough about it to speak with some limited authority on the subject. So in OCD, there's an issue of hyperconnectivity between the orbital cortex of the brain responsible for error detection. So you're feeling that something is wrong and the caudate nucleus, responsible for the regulation of thoughts entering into consciousness. So there's a malfunction of the caudate nucleus, and that causes people like me to be unable to simply dismiss crazy or distressing thoughts. Rather, the thought simply stays in one's mind, and the more one tries to dismiss a thought, the more highly activated the orbital cortex becomes, and therefore, the more anxiety there is. The only way to ward off the anxiety for an OCD sufferer is to create something of a ritual, the compulsion aspect of the disease. For example, OCD sufferers that think they're being contaminated by whatever nefarious real or imagined substance feel they cannot function at all after having the thoughts unless they wash their hands, nor will they be able to stop thinking about contamination until they do so. Though this development of rituals offers temporary relief, ultimately it only strengthens the pathological neural connections and only helps perpetuate the cycle of madness. So it would be wrong to think that mental illnesses are simply neurological diseases, or, cor- or correspond to neurological diseases in some simple one-to-one ratio, 
almost nobody of true relevance is saying this. And so the straw man continues. And yeah, and even there's really no one, there are virtually no one-to-one claims about any part of mental functioning, let alone mental disorder. I mean, even the best examples, things like Broca's aphasia, for example, result from lesions to Broca's area, which is a fairly discreet um, part of the, the left side of the frontal cortex is usually where that is. Um, that still involves interaction with other brain areas. So just whatever, this, whatever, Dylan, you're, you're just in the pocket of big brain. Oh, that's true. Yep. That's true. I'm sorry. <laughs> we know the truth. Oh, just as Brent is getting his big green energy grift money, Dylan <laughs> is with his <laughs> philosophy, neuroscience, psychology degree. You know, he's just using that to. Yeah, they're actually the funding. They're funding it. the research for this podcast. We've moved over. <laughs> The, these no sets of episodes neocons. are not neocon funded. We're now, you know, big pharma, big, uh, big psych. Nice. Morgan continues, quote, let us not forget that psychiatry once proclaimed homosexuality a disease. And let us note and let us not doubt that if the cultural zeitgeist was still against homosexuality, that biopsychiatry would be hunting for it in the brain and proclaiming it as a legitimate diagnosable brain disease. What has changed are social values, not scientific evidence. And so what Morgan is saying is partially true, but misleading. So it's true that changing social norms is what caused homosexuality to no longer be viewed as a mental disorder. Be that as it may, the neurological, behavioral, and genetic realities that might be associated with homosexuality, if they exist, would remain unchanged. It's not like those correlates go away just because society decided to be nicer to people. Yeah. And it's also it's what's funny about these kinds of claims is that it's ironically hard to make sense of homosexuality not being a mental illness. If you deny all mental illnesses outright, it's really the person who thinks Morgan saws off the branch he was sitting on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Luckily, he's a literal straw man at this point. So, you know, his fall will not do any major damage to any of his real organs. Yeah, I mean, the symbol, so. like the like the fact that homosexuality was classified as a mental illness, it's just the simple fact is that all of our scientific and medical practices are subject to the same bigotry and small minded stupidity as everything else we do. The history of hysteria as a mental illness is another example of this. Morgan categorizes this as a mere change of opinion due to different social norms. What it really was, was the recognition that the previous opinion was due to bigotry and not scientific evidence. So speaking of the belief in mental illness, Morgan continues, quote, let's not pretend this perspective is empirical, just like having diabetes, and therefore applicable to all subjects who have similar experiences. Nor should we ever build far-reaching policies and laws upon such a porous foundation. Let us instead call the brain disease hypothesis what it is a worldview, a theory with contradicting evidence, and a cultural bias. So, you know, that would be nice if it weren't for the fact that that's not what it is. Oh, Wait, so, man. So you're telling me that that would be correct if it was for the fact that it was completely false? <sighs> yep. Oh, yeah. That's what yeah. I'm telling you. That's. I mean, oh, so here's the thing. Okay. If cultural bias and contradictory evidence were deemed as all that was sufficient to dismiss any theory, then you'd have to dismiss all scientific theories. Yeah. A good scientific theory isn't totally devoid of cultural biases and the worldviews of the scientists that made it and contradictory evidence. Rather, they work or work well enough despite those limitations. For example, in physics, Einsteinian relativity and quantum mechanics are in many respects fundamentally at odds with each other. And Newtonian mechanics isn't as far-reaching in explanatory and predictive value as Einstein's. But that doesn't mean we simply say 
Newtonian, Einsteinian, and quantum mechanics are all merely hypotheses, no better than what you find in, say, the New Age section of your local Barnes & Noble. Uh, I think you may be forgetting the obvious here, though, Forrest. One Paul Potter, whose book is sitting at your local Barnes & Noble right now. Don't no, go it's by. not. It's sitting in the fucking garbage can outside, <laughs> of, sure. a, <laughs> outside <laughs> of a thrift store. Of a Salvation Army. Yeah, Salvation Army. Yeah, I mean, science is, is really complicated. And I, I think we it's easy to have a very simplistic idea about how all the sciences work. And again, the brain is the most complicated object in the universe. So, of course, there's going to be lots of contradictory evidence. And it's a matter of trying to figure out how to sift through all that and figure out which research programs are going to be more effective than others. And we have several different psychiatrists and neurobiologists and neuroscientists who are going in different directions. And it's kind of, you know, who's going to win out in the end. We might not necessarily know. I don't know, Dylan. That sounds like a bunch of elitist stuff to me. I prefer oh, simple yeah. solutions for simple minds. That's, that's, <laughs> oh, that's what I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so Morgan continues, quote, We can then make room for other perspectives. For one person's shrunken amygdala is another's child abuse, is another's combat experience, is another's religious mission, is another's salvation. For a guy concerned with category errors, this may be the greatest cavalcade of category <laughs> errors ever assembled. <laughs> yeah. Unite. If, if Gilbert Ryle saw this, he would have had a fucking heart attack. <laughs> yeah. A shrunken amygdala is child abuse, is combat experience, is religious mission, is salvation. Wow. I don't think so. Wow. <laughs> But on a on a serious note, this is precisely why in the definition of mental disorder from the DSM-5 we gave above, we need to consider the degree to which psychological symptoms result in suffering and impairment. For some, a shrunken amygdala won't cause suffering and impairment, and contemporary psychiatry won't therefore consider that person to have a mental disorder, exactly. which is something that Morgan just completely ignores. Morgan goes on with the madness, quote, what is important is how we build the most connection between people. Talking about experiences in non-clinical, everyday talk provides a bridge between people that is otherwise drowned by psychiatric jargon. I cannot relate to someone who is having a symptom of schizophrenia called paranoia, but I can relate to someone who is really scared. Oh, wow. And if I can relate, maybe I can align, be real, and open up with my own learned wisdom instead of parroting prescriptive treatment modalities. So this is where Morgan's ideas really become dangerous. Someone suffering from schizophrenia isn't simply scared. Yeah, definitely. And this is a good rule of thumb is when people want, quote, non-clinical everyday talk. What they really mean is imprecise and inaccurate descriptions of very complicated subject matter. That's all it means. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, if you think, say, your neighbor is a ventriloquist dummy and God commands you to put your neighbor's head on a pike on your front lawn, that's not just being really scared. Yeah, that's yeah, being a yeah. really dedicated Walking Dead or Game of Thrones fan, which is disturbing. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's probably more likely that a Walking Dead or Game of Thrones fan would do that than someone that was just really scared. I mean, seriously. <laughs> yeah. It's up. actually more likely. Yeah, exactly. In all seriousness, it is such idiotic and simplistic thinking as this that trivializes the seriousness of schizophrenia. One thing that is a truism of mental illness is that it, it's extremely hard, if not impossible, to give someone else a good sense of what it's like subjectively. The point here is that the mentally ill and the non-mentally ill cannot relate on a fundamental level. So Morgan's idea here is just pure folly. Mm -hmm. And Dylan, I'm sure, sure you've had an experience sort of like this in the sense of people not understanding. I mean, for me, when I tell people I suffer from OCD, I often get, 
oh yeah, I'm totally OCD. I like tidiness and things done my way. <laughs> or they say things like, oh yeah, I sometimes have crazy thoughts too. And they bother me, but I get over it. I mean, in my experience, you can tell just by the tone of their voice, they have no clue what I'm talking about. I definitely relate to people, other people not being able to relate. So when I'm experiencing a depressive episode, people want to know, like, what's wrong? As though there's some external cause, um, because that's the kind of thing that they are most familiar with. Right. But having a depressive episode, it causes me to interpret everything in a certain negative way. So the causal story is really reversed. And also, you know, I suffer from bipolar disorder. So I don't have the same issue as I think OCD is in kind of the common parlance is associated with like tidiness, like you said, Mm -hmm. where I don't think bipolar has that same connotation, although it's almost like the opposite because bipolar is often used to just describe someone as a maniac or someone who's crazy. They just say, oh, they're bipolar um, when it's a very discreet type of mental illness. Yeah, and I'm sure that perception doesn't help when someone's like in a really depressive state of mind. Yeah. And it's not a matter of being offended. Like I, I hate that way of talking about this. It's more a matter of accuracy and it can, it, yeah. You know, if I mean, these stereotypes are perpetuated, then we can't as a community, as a society really deal with these mental illnesses. Yeah. That, that's what I meant by that. I, I, I don't think I was quite clear, but it's not about offensiveness. Like you're saying, it's more of just the beliefs of the like collective culture around it can be harmful is the idea. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Like, so yeah, here's something twisted, like speaking of being a maniac, strangely enough, one thing about OCD is that patients typically have more insight into their state of mind than most mentally ill people do about theirs. I mean, not in like mm-hmm. a technical sense. They don't know the DSM, for example, but, yeah. um, and there's a spectrum of how insightful it is, but in the sense that they're, they have the ability to tell their thoughts and behaviors are irrational. They're better at it than most other people uh, mental illnesses. Interesting. OCD might be best described as like feeling like you're undergoing psychosis when you're not actually psychotic. So when I'm having these psycho thoughts, I think I'm more of a maniac than I actually am. So in the past, when I've tried to reach out and tell people I'm a maniac and they rise, and they rightly say, no, you're not. I experienced this like cognitive dissonance and almost wanted them to tell me I was a maniac. I mean, <laughs> that way, at least there was an explanation, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like this weird, this weird thing of almost like, like I kind of in this twisted, fucked up way, I almost wanted people to think I was crazy just because at least it like I wouldn't deal with that cognitive dissonance. It's really strange. Yeah, it's funny. I've experienced something similar in that when I'm in either an extreme depressive or mixed episode, as they're called, and I have these really negative delusions about my self-worth and all that kind of stuff. If I ever reach out to someone and tell them what I'm thinking and they deny it, it tends to make me aggravated. (laughs) Like, you know, it's like, no, like I it, it doesn't help. To, for someone to counter that belief. Like, I think they're lying to me because that's part of the delusion. Yeah. Is that right. people are lying to me about my self-worth and about the positive impact I'm making on them. So when they tell me that, it just reinforces it. Right, exactly. So yeah, that that is similar for sure. And so Morgan ends his stupid screed with this <laughs> quote. Patients should remember that a medical degree does not denote an understanding of consciousness that people of all stripes have been trying to make sense of the mind forever, and that however unfortunate for industries that stand to make record-breaking profits otherwise, we cannot yet siphon the great mystery, great mystery, all caps, or not all caps, but G and M in caps, down (laughs) into neuronal patterns and genetic variants. So that encapsulates this dangerous attitude perfectly, I believe. It's distrust experts, material science is dehumanizing, Consciousness is eternally supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and 
at the bottom of it all, it's all about the shadowy they making money. Ooh. Mm, I wonder who they are. Refer to our last series to find out who mm. they are. Hint, it's the Babylonians. <laughs> yes. It is. Also, I, I hate when people do this when it comes to the mind, because we've been trying to make sense of everything forever without a final explanation. <laughs> like like you brought up earlier, Forrest, about how right now there's this incongruity between Einsteinian relativity and quantum mechanics. And right now the goal is to figure out how to make these two inconsistent theories consistent. That's kind of the main one of the main projects in in fundamental physics, but we don't throw away physics and chemistry because we haven't arrived at a final explanation yet. Right. And yet this kind of malarkey is just so common because we haven't arrived at a final explanation of psychology. It drives me well, nuts. You know, speak for yourself, Dylan. All I'm saying is when we finally do our series on alchemy, it's going to be awkward for me <laughs> and you guys. So, uh, Well, alchemy is true, so I don't think it, and we have true. a final that's alchemical good. theory, of course. And it should also be noted the great strides we are making in psychology, neuroscience, and psychiatry to better understand the neural and psychological mechanisms behind our mental lives, to simply label it, quote, the great mystery, and to dismiss all the amazing and life-saving work the psychologists and neuroscientists are doing is just boring anti-intellectualism, yeah. frankly. Yeah, no, I totally agree. <clears throat> I mean, I have also never understood this idea that material science deprives us of the great mystery, ooh, or whatever. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. I've really not never understood this idea. I mean, you have the way a rainbow looks, it makes you feel, and then you learn how to understand prisms and optics. I mean, it just makes it more interesting to me. So I don't understand yeah. why it's like deprived, like sucks the soul out of it or something. It's like in order to appreciate anything, you have to have knowledge about it. So mm -hmm. this idea that you just stand stupefied at nature and go, whoa, with no knowledge, like that to me is, <laughs> you're not it's really even- more. You're, you're not even in awe if you know yeah. nothing, you know, so I don't know. It's just a weird, it's a weird. Attitude, yeah. You have to know what counts as amazing and what doesn't to really be awed by something. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the exactly. one, the point I want to end on is that, you know, Morgan does this anti big pharma thing. And I don't want to say that there are no criticisms to be made about pharmaceutical companies or about government regulation of pharmaceutical companies. But if it weren't for those industries, I would be dead. I have a mental disorder that would have killed me if it were not for these companies creating pharmaceuticals that saved my life. And so Morgan's piece, the goal is to get a few more eyeballs on their website. So maybe people will buy more from their merch store. And it's spreading a message that would kill people. And yep. I think that's the, the last thing I want to say about that. Yep. And that's yep. why we brought it up here on this podcast to yep. expose it for what it is. And so with that, there's really one final piece to the mental illness denial anti-psychiatry puzzle. And that is the role of our best friends, the Scientologists in anti-psychiatry. <laughs> but for that, we'll have to wait until next week because that is the end of Mental Illness Denial Part 1. So Brent, Forrest, what have you learned from this episode? What most stuck out to you? I'll, I'll go first here real quick. I actually learned quite a bit from this episode. Honestly, I enjoyed Dylan's explanation of the difference between like the minimal interpretation and the strong interpretation of mental illness. That was informative mm -hmm. to me. Um, also, 
I thoroughly enjoyed the forest takedown of the massive straw man. That was nice. Yeah. And yeah. also, I actually, when you were when we were talking about, or when you were talking about your OCD dealings for us, I, I know I was curious because I know you meditate. How, with dealing with thoughts like that, how does that affect you? Does that help you? Oh, yeah. So met, there was a time, actually, when I didn't know that I was suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder. And yeah. I took up meditation. And one of the main reasons why I was, I was actually, uh, it was actually therapeutic to me. And I didn't really know why it was. And there was a time when I was dependent upon it. Like if I didn't meditate for 45 minutes a day, like I was just fucked. Mm. And by the way, everyone, I practiced what was called like mindfulness meditation. It was, yeah. uh, I think, John Kabat-Zinn. He sort of imported like Eastern meditation practices, but made it, you know, he just stripped it of all the woo-woo yeah. to, to try to make it more consistent with what we know in um, like medical medicine. All right. I'm sorry. In Western medicine. Medical and, medicine. Um, <laughs> yeah. Medical medicine. Wow. That's, that's a tautology. The tautology of medical medicine. Anyway, medicine that has a medical aspect. Um, well, here's the thing though. And not that I, I'm just advocating this as a cure all because there's a lot of bullshit about yeah. this. But recently I've been taking uh, CBD oil, cannabidiol, and I, I stopped meditating. It seems to really help with my issues. So it's almost like what I get from 45 minutes of meditation, I get instantly from this product. So again, like it could be a placebo effect or something. I'm not going to rule that out. Yeah. So I don't want to like go on here saying, oh, this is all, this is absolutely true. If everyone out here that's listening has OCD, buy some CBD right now and it'll cure you. I want to be very clear. <laughs> right, that that's right. not, yeah. that is not what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying at least for me, in my experience, it seems to be helping. So mm. there's that. Interesting. Um, what did what did And I guess I if I learned something from this episode, it's something to do with the error theorizing. Mm. So like for example, when Gilbert Ryle attacked Descartes' mind body paradigm in his book, uh The Concept of Mind. Is that what it's called, Brent? Concept yeah, of Mind. Concept of Mind. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. So and Descartes, he really was referring to something like paramechanical entities or mind substances. Mm-hmm. Or is the Brent Brent and I like to call them ghost organs. But <laughs> Like the soul. Um, Ryle wasn't strawmanning his arguments against Descartes, but after reading through the DSM, you find that modern psychiatry just has nothing to do with this strong interpretation of the medical model. Right. Yeah. So it's really just this total strawman argument. And so I guess that's the main takeaway from all this is that mental health denialism is built upon this strawman argument. And even Morgan's article is almost like a verbatim. Uh, screed from so, some of the things Zaza said. Yeah. So it's like, it's it, it. So if the whole thing is just this straw man argument, I mean, that's that's it. It's yeah, done. It's I over. Think we've, <laughs> we've destroyed it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's right. And you don't? Yeah, I think the main thing I learned is because I'm familiar with some of this material in the past. I've done some stuff on philosophy of medicine, philosophy of psychiatry. And I think the thing I want to remind people is that there are difficult questions, conceptual questions about what psychiatry is, how we should understand psychiatric disorders. I think that the DSM-5 and the DSM-4 discussion about defining mental disorders kind of brings us up that it's difficult. We don't yet know perfectly how to do this. And there's questions about what's the relationship between the psychiatric disorders and potential neurological correlates. And that there's a lot of interesting, difficult questions to be solved and that are important to be solved, but it's, these are not the questions that mental illness denialists are asking They're as Forrest put it, they're working with a straw man. Mm-hmm. 
And that straw man prevents these interesting questions from being discussed and being addressed. Hey, Dylan, let me ask you something because you you would probably know you'd probably know more than I on this. Mm-hmm. Um, is it true though that early psychiatry did treat of mental illness in this way, where it would be like a category, or where they were referring to it as if it were some kind of object in the head that needed to be removed or anything? Like, was it ever that? Was there any? In, in history, um, I, I, mean. I am not sure. I mean, the one thing is, again, there's the kind of psychoanalytical tradition. And that was definitely this notion of mental processes, you know, things like sublimation, this idea that you've got the id that needs to be kind of pushed down, so to speak, by the ego and the superego. Um, I'm not an expert on right. psychoanalysis. But, and but, that but even then, like Freud never... in at least as I understand it, like Freud never intended the ego and the super ego and the id to be Actually, objects in the object. head or anything like that. No, no. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm not sure if that, I mean, I imagine, you know, I honestly just don't know. I just don't know. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I, I just, I think, you know, substance dualism in the mind has been on the back burner for a few, a few centuries now. So I'm highly skeptical that this kind of substance dualist perspective in psychiatry was ever, in recent memory, a very popular. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. So I haven't poured through the poured through the literature. All I, all I know of is mostly the mo- modern um, psychiatry from the DSM five and all that, mm-hmm. and that has nothing to do with what Zaz and Morgan are talking about. So yeah, exactly. That's what I'm. I'm just wondering though if if their arguments at one point had some kind of um, some kind of validity. But even then, like you said, if you go all the way back to Freud, and I think Freud was you know full of shit for the most part, but it, even he, at least as I understand it, he wasn't referring to an ill mind as if like there was an object inside the skull that you could just remove and you'd be right. better. I, I never. Yeah, no. Never and I mean, he was way. also so I mean, he was a neurologist. I mean, that's yeah. how his training started. All right. And so that is it for uh, mental illness denialism part one. And so just a few reminders for everyone. If you could please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever podcasts are served. And if you could also please tell five friends about our podcasts and let them know all the amazing knowledge you're gaining just by subscribing and listening. And we are on social media at NDCIO on Twitter at none dare call it ordinary on Instagram. And we are also on YouTube and yes. And yeah, we also now have a discord channel. If you go to none dare call it ordinary.com, you'll find a link to our discord channel You'll also find a link to the Mueller report. Actually, we did a bit of text recognition because the the report as released by the DOJ, you could not do like a control F to find stuff because they're uh, either incompetent or evil or both. <laughs> and so if you go to our website, nundarecalledordinary.com, you will find a link to a PDF that you can actually search. And also, if you go to nundarecalledordinary.com slash mental health, you'll find a list of a bunch of resources if you need any kind of help with your mental health. And also uh, we want to mention everybody, we are doing a new sub series um, called none dare call it wrong. And the idea is if you as a listener ever come across anything we say, that's either false or disingenuous, then just um, email us at none dare call ordinary at gmail.com. And um, if your arguments have any merit and you allow us to use your name on the podcast, we will, and we'll bring you up and what you have to say. Exactly. We don't want to spread falsehoods. We just want to spread the beautiful truth. Yes. And with that, we are... are
Duh. Duh.